ready to rise above loud, angry headlines, longing for an alternative to the world's fighting and fear-mongering? Christianity Today magazine offers a trustworthy, faithful perspective on stories that matter to you, from the church next door to movements and ministries all around the world. Subscribe to CT for full access to in-depth reporting, insightful commentary, and redemptive storytelling, both online and in print. A subscription to CT also includes seasonal devotionals, special issues, and exclusive content. Visit orderct.com today or click the link in the show notes to get started and join a growing community of thoughtful evangelical Christians who value different news that makes a difference. That's orderct.com to subscribe today. This episode is brought to you in part by Litvin School of Mission, Ministry, and Leadership at Wheaton College. Our graduate programs in evangelism, ministry, and leadership enrich your mind, spirit, vocation, and character to refine what's already within you. Learn more at wheaton.edu. ct Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. This is where we gather together digitally, electronically uh, every week to have conversations and listen in on conversations with people that um, that intrigue me and people who have uh, helped me out as I'm uh, working through life. And uh, today is no exception as we look for those pointers of grace that Walker Percy would call signposts in a strange land. Uh, one of the things that is really difficult for a lot of people, I, I notice this when I'm doing reading in exile videos, for instance, talking about different books. One of the things that comes up a lot are people who will message me or put comments and say, I'm trying to figure out good books to help me with prayer. And a lot of people who will say, the so-called spiritual disciplines, prayer and fasting and Bible reading and so forth, they're really hard uh, for me. And a lot of people who will say, I don't really like to say this out loud because it it just sounds bad, but it's really hard to do those things. And it is, it, it really is. And that's why I was really intrigued and fascinated with this really good book called The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction, that uh, talks about building those uh, structures in one's life that can, over time, build those habits toward a better understanding of spirituality. A really, really helpful book, uh, very practical, illuminating, and it's written by a mergers and acquisitions lawyer in Richmond, a former missionary to China, Justin Early, and he and his wife, Lauren, have four sons. And Justin, thanks for being with us on Signpost today. You're so welcome. I'm very honored to be here. I loved this book, and I'm wondering, uh, where did it come from? I know there are probably people out there who uh, just decide one day, I'm going to sit down and write on this topic. I don't understand those people because whenever I write something, it usually comes out of some sort of struggle that I'm having personally, and I'm right. sort of walking myself through it. How did this book uh, emerge for you? This this book was a total accident, <laughs> and I've always wanted to write. I was an English literature 
major at the University of Virginia. And my computer is filled with poetry and novel manuscripts and short stories and all this stuff. And I always laugh um, to think that if my 20-something-year-old self knew that my first book was as a, a, a young 30s book on habits and spiritual disciplines in the Christian nonfiction section, I would just be so surprised. <laughs> so this book was an accident because of life crisis, really. Hmm. And so was it something that when you were going through the crisis, you were thinking, uh, I've got to help myself through this and learn some stuff that you were then able to, to communicate in book form later on? Well, what happened to me, I think, is that my life fell apart. And as I put it back together, I realized that I was less strange and more typical than I had ever imagined. Huh. And, and I guess um, maybe it's worth, you know, in brief telling the story. So as you suggested in the introduction, I was a missionary in China for almost five years until I felt the Lord calling me to come back to the States to work missionally within law and business, um, a statement which we could probably spend hours unpacking. But for the listeners, it's suffice it to say, I, I really felt called to become a lawyer. And I went at law school with all the fervor of a man on a calling. And some of that was great. It landed me, you know, graduating around the top of my class and, you know, getting my dream job in mergers and acquisitions at an international law firm down here in Richmond, Virginia. I had a wife and two sons at the time. So life, life was going really well in this quote unquote calling. What I did not realize at the time was that I had totally assimilated to all the habits and patterns and practices of the top law school student and the ambitious young lawyer. And so I was always, I was just doing what everybody else did. We all did it. And I didn't think it was a problem. You know, we stayed up all hours of the night and woke up early in the morning. We were always adding more engagements to our calendars and, you know, packing our resume completely tethered to the phone, obviously. Um, and uh, this was just, it was working great for me until it, until it wasn't. And I had what I now know was, and what I now know to call an total anxiety breakdown replete with panic attacks and insomnia in my early uh, months of lawyering. And suddenly, um, you know, I think I realized that while the, the house of my life was decorated with this co Christian content, the architecture of my habits were just like everybody else's. And, and they, they fell apart like a house of cards. Hmm. And, and, and th that's when I knew something was really, really wrong. What a blessing for that to happen so early. That, that happens for a lot of people, uh, but the typical situation is it happens much, much later in their lives, and they they really are uh, don't even know how to start then to, to put things back together. I, I love that you said that. Um, many people's response to when I share about my anxiety collapse, and I share about it often now, many people's response is, oh, that must have been so hard, and it was. But that, the response that, what a blessing— is actually the same thing my mom said hmm. the, the, that week that my life was falling apart. Because what happened is I, I wasn't sleeping. I, I was totally arrested by panic attacks. And I even started, um, I entered into a period of my life that lasted for months where I either needed to take sleeping pills or have a couple glasses of wine just to fall asleep. And this is when I knew that the, the missionary had been converted. You know, I, I was the missionary to law and business, and I had become converted to the nervous medicating lawyer in such short order. 
And the question for me was how that, what does this mean and how did that happen? Um, I now see that the, the answer was by habit. I think over a long period of law school and then some short months of lawyering, I, I had um, my, my heart and mind slowly started to believe the, and even worship the anxiety and the nervousness of my habits and routines. And I had to do some really hard work to start to align my you know, worldview calling with my habits, beliefs, practices, and disciplines. But as you said, and as my mom said that first week that it all sort of fell apart, it's been an enormous blessing to me that it happened then. And now the greatest thing that I maybe have to, you know, to share with the world is um, that we are being formed by our habits. And that is means they're really important to pay attention to. Yeah. One of the things about habits sort of by definition is they become invisible and they simply become what seems normal to you. And so I think about when you were talking about being converted to uh, the, the sort of frenetic pace of, uh, you said law, but I would just say generally American life uh, right it's now absolutely in, true. in multitude right. of fields. I was thinking about my mom, who was an elementary school teacher, who would often have to uh, talk to young kids who lived in horrible, dysfunctional situations and say, help them to see that their living situation wasn't normal before mm-hmm. anything else. That yes. you know, a lot of these kids would just assume this is just the way life is. And she had to give a vision of no life could be better for you and 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 should be better for you. It seems to me that that's the case for all of us. We we just sort of get into these habits and we don't know where they are. But how do you build habits of purpose, as you mentioned? How do you do that without it becoming like a Weight Watchers app where you're putting in everything that you eat, uh, where, where something where your life becomes so regimented that it seems to be drawing joy out? Uh, yes. Yeah, well. I think for me to get there, which, and I think it's probably true for most everybody, you've really got to go under, uh, undergo a fundamental conversion or rethinking in the way that you understand freedom and limitations. And so for me, I grew up, I think, as a good American, thinking that any constraints on my free will to choose whatever I want in any given moment was bad. You know, that's a no-no. Because freedom is what makes us happy. And so I even defined freedom, I think, unconsciously as the absence of all restraints. Um, it wasn't until I fell apart and began, and the way this happened, um, by the way, was simply, it was a last-ditch effort with, some, with my wife and a couple friends. I asked them to keep me accountable to a program of daily and weekly habits just in order to rein my chaos in. And this was about 12 months after my anxiety collapse. And I had no idea that these little habits would be very important because I had no idea at the time how much the smallest and most ordinary practices of our days and weeks actually really do affect our, our spiritual life, our emotional life in the most significant and extraordinary ways. So that was my moment where I started to feel entirely differently in my day-to-day living simply because I was doing 
time-honored spiritual disciplines in, in ways that were applied to modern life, like actually taking a Sabbath or actually looking at my scripture before I looked at my phone, turning my phone off for one hour a day, just little things that I didn't think were mattered. They mattered so much. And I think that's when I had the gut realization that freedom is not the absence of all limitations. Freedom is the presence of the right ones. We are finite creatures that will always, and the New Testament uses this language so much, you know, we'll serve some master. Um, best to tether ourselves to the good master. And so now I, I think a lot about the light burden, the easy yoke, and I think about what would it mean to put the light burden of Christ onto our daily and weekly routines so that we can actually be free to be who we were created to be instead of be free to do whatever we want. Because what we want usually ends up in our own enslavement to some master who doesn't love us. One of the things I really liked uh, about this book is your treatment, and I really hope that one day you'll follow this up with a, a book just about this uh, in more <laughs> okay, detail. Okay, now, now I'm listening. <laughs> <laughs> but your treatment of the body and, and about the, the use of the body in spiritual disciplines when it comes to, to kneeling, uh, for instance, and what that immediately brought to mind for me as I was reading it the first time uh, last year is I grew up in a really uh, what what people would call a low church sort of congregation. But at the end of every service, there was an altar call, which is easily lampooned uh, as sort of overly emotional and and so forth. But, the but it involves call, the body, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. Not only in terms of calling people to make professions of faith, but what I noticed years later that I missed was the fact that at the end of the service, anybody who wanted to or needed to would go forward and kneel on the steps there and pray either alone or together. And uh, you know, I heard a lot of people giving critiques of the altar call. We have no altar. Our altar is, is Christ, and this is so forth. But what I found replaced that in in most of the places that were really critical of it was a hyper-cerebral sort of uh, super propositional kind of spirituality. And I realized just how much was actually going on in the people who would uh, go forward and kneel or somebody who would go up, uh, someone's kneeling there and someone else just goes up and puts a hand on the shoulder. Yes, yes. There's a lot going on there. Uh, how how does somebody incorporate the body in terms of their own their own spiritual disciplines in life? Yeah, I love everything you just went through because I think it's so so important for followers of Jesus right now in a technological age. The way that this came to me, and I think what you're referring to in the book is. One of the habits I started in that recovery period that I mentioned earlier was kneeling prayer three times a day as a daily habit, which sounds kind of exactly like we, we were talking about earlier, maybe constraining, maybe overly high church, this idea of like, you know, pay your penance and then you'll finally be holy. No, it, it was nothing like that. It was just I, one of the things I wanted to do at the time was say, how do, how do I, in the midst of my chaos and my own failures, how would I actually be a person of prayer or moving towards prayer. Because one of the things that was happening in my anxiety collapse, and anybody who's struggled with anxiety will be familiar with this, is that when 
when you're silent and you start to just close your eyes and pray in your head, you can encounter some of your darkest demons. I mean, sometimes your mind will start to go haywire. And I think this is this is both the body and the brain. This is spiritual warfare. This is a lot of things going on here. But so one of the things that I did was what was comfortable for me during that time was just to kneel at waking at noon or whenever I decided to sort of take a lunch break and then at evening and say a short prayer. They were often the same thing. And sometimes I even had them written down. And what I found was that far more, far, far from being rote or meaningless, by actually pausing, kneeling, which by the way, you, everybody probably knows it's very uncomfortable to kneel. <laughs> you know, it's not, especially when you're in a suit in an office and you're closing your door and it's awkward. But my whole body's attention was, was suddenly aroused. Um, and by getting the attention of the body, I had suddenly had the attention of my mind. And so suddenly I was actually attentive to this prayer. And these became moments of meaning and comfort in a way that, um, just to, to be honest, a couple minutes before I jumped on this podcast, I did my midday kneeling prayer. And um, it's, just, it's a habit that's continued now for years. And I think that I would never, ever, even at my best time as a missionary in China, actually have described myself as a person of prayer. It just was not really a life that I lived, embarrassingly. And suddenly now as a you know corporate business lawyer, I actually, I, I, I'm grateful to God's grace. He has made me into somebody who prays, and it's happened much through these habits of, of the body. And I think that's a little bit of a microcosm of what I'm talking about in a lot of these habits. I think we think that what we think is the most important part about our faith. And I think that to divide up our faith into the, the education and think we need to not pay attention to any of the formation, and of mm -hmm. course formation involves the culture and the practices and the bodies and the water that we swim in. You know, my conversion to the nervous medicating lawyer was because I thought I thought really well, and I did. It's just that my body, my mind, my, in my mind, through my eyes and technology was being taken somewhere entirely different. And so a lot of the spiritual disciplines and habits that I'm interested in now and interested in helping others along with is, is about really engaging formation right alongside our, our great and wonderful and, and we should never forget about it, you know, good worldview theological education. They need to happen in tandem. Isn't it true that once you do start building these these regular habits, that this can become sort of a spiritual carbon monoxide detector to sort of show you when it's not happening or when it's hard, uh, unusually hard. It can help you to know when there's something going on that needs to be dealt with that otherwise would just just go passing by. I've never heard it put like that, but that is a Fantastic analogy. I think one of the things that's happened to me in now over five years, at least since I started doing these small habits of scripture before phone or kneeling prayer certain times of the day, Sabbath, now I sense when my body and my mind is, is getting to an unhealthy pace. I start to recognize like the car engine rumbling um, or the carbon monoxide detector is a, is a good one. I just, I start to recognize the danger signs in my body, which are always sort of a, this, the theological idea that's going on is I, I think my fundamental sin is um, 
to overreach my limitations. I don't want, I want to be God. I don't I just want to be like him, right? I want, mm-hmm. I want to be him. I want to be able to do all things. I want to be able to make the best grade, you know, write the best paper, serve my client and be the best lawyer, also write the best book, also be the best father. I mean, just this enormous rapacious desire to be loved and approved of by being God. And that's, and that's my, you know, that's the way I think my fallenness manifests itself. And now I start to notice that a lot sooner um, because I see my body redlining. I see that my soul start to redline and I think, oh, no, you know, come back. And I think these practices do help. They act to me, they act as guardrails a lot. You know, the spiritual disciplines disciple us and these guardrails disciple me to keeping in the center of, I, th- I think, the, the path and preventing me from crashing on the, these edges of pride. You talk in the book about eating, uh, not not just in terms of fasting, although you do talk about that, but but also about about eating uh, together. One of the things that, as we're talking right now, of course, we're in the the midst of the COVID nineteen pandemic, and one of the things that I've heard from countless people is about how when quarantine first happened, they started to realize how long it had been since they had had family meals. Right, And instead, just over time, as you mentioned, just the habits had started where everyone eats at a different time, just sort of standing up over the sink (laughs) or Mm -hmm. what have you. And this forced it back. And you talk a lot about about eating here. And I was reading a couple of weeks ago, Jim Wilder, uh, this book on Dallas Willard, uh, Renovated, and he talks about attachment theory and about how it's built into the human being uh, as an infant to attach to the one who feeds you. And that this is exactly the problem in Genesis 3 is being fed by someone other than God, uh, which, of course, led me to the first temptation of Christ and so many other uh, examples of this, both positively and negatively, uh, throughout the Bible. And I think that's right. It, it really it caused me to think about the blessing of the food in a much different way, that this is gratitude, but it's it's not just gratitude. It's also training myself to realize that I am being fed. What would you say to someone who just has a difficult time uh, making eating together work? Making eating together work is one of the hardest things to do because it is such a countercultural thing to do. And that's exactly why it's so important. So one of the first things I would say is that I am the the chief of sinners here and still the most tempted. The reason that I became interested in habits of daily meals with others, and that's the simple habit in the book, right? The habit is to every day have one communal meal. The reason I started doing that as again as a guardrail is because I was prone and I had, you know, a family. I wasn't, you know, a bachelor anymore, but I was prone to eat breakfast on the go, eat lunch at my desk, and maybe make it home for dinner if a client didn't email. And so by having no limits or guards against this, I completely went with the cultural current of the high-paced life, which is food is fuel. You know, it's what you, 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 of course, you have to stop to eat it sometimes, but you don't really have to stop. You can microwave it on the go. And, um, that says an enormous statement about theologically what we actually think we are. You know, um, people who need to minimize this need for food as much as possible because 
Our life is for something else. And, and by the way, there's also a competing, I think, cultural narrative that happens sort of at the same time, sometimes in tension with, and that is that food is fashion. Um, you know, we, we take pictures of our meals and we, when we do occasionally pause to eat, it's these incredibly artisanal feasts that we supposedly do in backyards with string lights. And, you know, um, <laughs> you could go into either side of this, but neither side is this idea that we're people who were built to need, need God, need each other, need to eat. I mean, it's amazingly theologically significant to me that things have to die so that we can live as a matter of breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Mm-hmm. And, and many nights I pray with my sons at the table, you know, Lord, thank you that these things died so that we can live. And thank you that you died so that we might live. I mean, the way that we eat teaches us so much about our life. And that's a bit of a tangent into just saying, eating is so important. It says so much about of us. So as a quote unquote, really busy, you know, corporate lawyer, I realized that if, if my, if I could not make time to eat with my family as a, a, a routine, then something was not just off in my schedule, something was off in my theology and my heart and my family formation. And so I, you know, had a reset during this habit period of realizing that the, the table is that if, Making the table the center of gravity of our daily schedule, meaning for me at the time, I will make it to family dinner. The, you know, I, I can open my laptop after bedtime, but I will make it to family dinner. That suddenly made the table the center of gravity for our community. And we actually came together and we, and we talked. And, you know, and, and this is still now one of the most important practices in our family. It's just we eat together. Every night we eat together. One of the most freeing disciplines and one of the most, you know, formational disciplines in terms of forming the family and love that I think we've stumbled on as, as if it's something new, right? <laughs> Nothing mm-hmm. new, but it's so important. You know, the, the subtitle talks about an age of distraction. And I don't think, I started to say a day doesn't go by, maybe a two-hour block doesn't go by that I'm not hearing from somebody who is talking about uh, something that is related in some way or other to their phones mm-hmm. in terms of just their their quality of life, not not even something necessarily bad morally or ethically, but just in terms of their exhaustion. And one of the things that sort of accidentally happened but turned out to be probably one of the things I'm most grateful for this past year, I noticed on Twitter that I was starting to think badly uh, about people, people that I know and people that I love, but I could see a side of them that would cause me to to think differently about them. Mm-hmm. And also I would notice that I would get really hypervigilant. Uh, and so, I mean, even though I didn't read random at replies, but – you know, it would just stick in my brain when someone would say, praying right, for right. you, you know, because I would think, what? What's happened? <laughs> that, sort of, that sort of a thing. And going off of it, yeah. uh, you know, I'll, I'll yeah. still send things out there, but I don't consume it anymore. And I thought, I'm just going to take a little break from it. One of the things I thought would happen is that I would be disconnected from what's going on and I wouldn't know what was going on. And I found my attention coming back. Uh, mm-hmm. a depth mm-hmm. of attention. 
these sorts of things. And I, I wasn't really able to articulate what was going on until I read this essay by Thomas Merton where he talks about television news. And he says that, that his, um, his abstinence from television actually enabled him to be better informed because he could distinguish between events and pseudo-events. And I think that's exactly right uh, when it comes to social media. But how does someone recognize when their their lives are being dominated by this sort of connectedness? Uh, and, and maybe they, they don't want to totally uh, disconnect from it. Maybe they don't even want to temporarily disconnect from it, but they have to do something. What, <laughs> what counsel would you give? Well, the first, the first answer is an easy one. How does somebody recognize that you know they're being dominated by technology or constantly distracted? I think all that you need to do is look at the calendar, and if it is 2020, uh, you are. <laughs> if you live yeah. right now and you're hearing this, you are. And this is why this is so so important. It might be redundant and said a million times, but it's it's because it's true. We are living in a fundamental cultural shift because we are living in a fundamental technology shift. I love that you just pointed to Merton talking about TV. I'm guessing probably in the 1960s. Um, I haven't read that essay. But what we've seen in the past century in terms of technological advances is just incredible. And we know that from the advent of the printing press that significant technological advances that change the way we get and receive information and can reproduce it tend to rearrange society for a couple of centuries. And if TV and radio wasn't enough in the early half of the 20th century, now, you know, now in the past 10 years, we've seen exponential shifts in technology. So any Christian who wants to follow Jesus and, and, and love the culture that we live in as we do so needs to pay attention to technology. And the reason that I think we are failing at this rather dramatically is because technology is now the water that we swim in and we do not even notice how fractured, distracted, and judgmental, angry, addicted, envious we are because it's the water we swim in. And so, you know, when you wake up first thing in the morning and you roll over and open your eyes to Twitter or news media, um, I think many of us don't realize the extent to which the programmers and the producers behind this, they understand that anger is addictive and the algorithms work ac accordingly. The news cycle works accordingly. When it's social media or Instagram, the first thing in the morning, they know that envy is addictive. They know that there's a certain things that happens to you when you see these kinds of pictures of other people's lives. There's, I could go down the line. All of these things have incredible formative power. And I am uh, someone who loves technology. I am far from a Luddite. I use it all the time. Um, and I, I just, I think fundamentally, we need to radically reconsider how, not whether, but just how technology should be used by us and how it's forming us. Because it's, it is just so central to how we will or we will not love our neighbor. As you just said in your Twitter example, I mean, we think differently about people <laughs> via social media. We, we've got to be, be attentive to that. Which is why a lot of the habits that I talk about in the common rule, at least half of them deal with technology. Because I think th these are the spiritual disciplines for the modern age. We, we need to figure out how to love God and love neighbor amidst the new world of technology. You're talking about loving neighbor and you talk, uh, you talk a lot in here about community and, and connection. How does that happen 
in a time where, because of a lot of the shifts that we've already talked about right now, friendship is really, really hard because, as one person said to me, it's just really difficult because it's awkward. You can't walk up to someone and say, hey, would you be my friend? (laughs) And so you end up with a situation where you're connected to thousands of people at the superficial level, but you really don't, you're really not connected to, to anyone. How does somebody in that state start to change it? Well, two of the habits that I practice and now and wrote about in the common rule are, are dear to me for this very reason, because they're designed to point us towards presence and friendship. And that is the daily habit of turning your phone off for an hour every day and the weekly habit of having a, a vulnerable conversation with a friend every week. And, you know, simply put, these are, these are the ideas that we were made for presence. We see this in the Garden of Eden. We, you know, we see this in the promise of Revelation. We see this in the incarnation of Jesus. We were made uh, to be people who are present with God and present with each other. And distraction is not just the enemy of productivity. I, I think it's the enemy of love. You cannot love distractedly. You need to be present in order to love. And so just, I don't think... Um, because I did initially, I don't think most people understand how significant it is to have regular rhythms in your day where you promise to be present because you remove distraction in the form of the screens. And so this is most likely going to affect you most at, at home, you know, if you're married or with kids or if you live with roommates, create rhythms of presence for friendship and community there. But the, the weekly practice that I also cling to is this idea of getting together with a friend every week. And this might be an accountability group or a small group, or it might just be a backyard fire, which it is right now often during COVID for me. But the, the, it's the idea of getting together and doing the, one of the most radically countercultural things we can do right now. And that is tell the truth unvarnished in real time, face to face. That is so different than a life curated for social media. And it, it tends to never work to get together with somebody and say, would you be my friend? <laughs> What does tend to work is get together with somebody and tell them a secret. Tell them the truth. Yeah. Speak vulnerably about what you, you, you may confess because Jesus died and rose again for the forgiveness of those sins. We can tell the truth. And that kind of vulnerability is actually the that thing that we're afraid of is actually the exact thing that creates the community and the friendship that we long for because we find in vulnerability that we are all sinners and we are all in need of Jesus's love. And so that is if there's if there's a theme, I think that at least half of these habits point to it's that to be present and to be vulnerable because that is in one way to be um people who who almost incarnate the gospel of Jesus Christ to each other on a daily basis by saying we are flawed but we're sticking together anyway. We are, we are failures but we're loving anyway and that's exactly what Jesus has said to us. Well, the book is The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction by Justin Early. I really commend it to you. It's not what you think it is. Uh, I hate the kind of book you probably think this is, which is do this, do that, schedule everything out moment. But it's not that. It's, It's habits, building in habits. You actually can do this in terms of the rhythms of of a life that are commended here, and uh, and you'll really be helped by it. So I, I really commend it to you. Justin Early, thanks so much for being with us on Signpost. You're welcome. Thank you. 
This has been Signpost. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And it really helps us if you leave a review for people to, to find us. And if you're listening on a smartphone, turn it off for an hour today. But also, if you want to, tap the cover art. and You'll find show notes and some resources, including how you can get this book, The Common Rule. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts.